Gabby Barkey is a world-renowned archaeologist. He does most of his work in Israel. And it was back in 1979, he was doing work in the Hinnon Valley. He had been looking at caves that had been said to be burial places that were 2,000 years old. Well, he also was very helpful in trying to inspire the study of archaeology. And he had one day a a class of of kids, 12 years old, students, there from a, a school in Jerusalem, come out and want to work. I mean, they wanted to get their hands dirty. And so he wanted to give them that opportunity and show them how to do it. He sat them down, began explaining archaeology and how to have a dig. And boy, these kids had questions. But none had many as questions as a kid named Nathan. Oh my goodness, Nathan had so many questions. He was Mr. Enthusiasm. And he was asking and asking. He was about to drive Gabby crazy. And so finally he brought all that to a close and thought I'll kind of put each child in a different place to do some work. And he decided to start with Nathan and kind of give him a place a ways away. He took him out to a place and he said, now this is a floor we've excavated around here. And what I'd like you to do is to sweep this floor. I want you to sweep it as clean as you would your mother's kitchen. And he thought, I'll take care of him for a while, and went back to work with some of the other kids. But he'd only been gone about 15 minutes when suddenly there was a tug at his sleeve, and he turned around, and here was Nathan. And Nathan was holding up two pieces of pottery. Gabby about had a heart attack. He was shocked, and he said, where did you get that? Under the stones. What stones? He led him back, and there he showed what had happened. He had been working, sweeping this floor, but Mr. Enthusiasm wasn't happy just to sweep the floor. He wanted to remodel. (laughs) He had taken out a hammer, and he began to beat on the floor and to dig, and when he dug, he discovered there was this big room underneath the floor. No one had ever seen it before. Well, it turned out immediately Gabby called everybody off the site. They began bringing in the professional people to do the excavation. And they began going in and they found a thousand objects there in this room that had been hidden up till now. Now, if you have a floor, but underneath it you have another room, then a floor isn't a floor, it's a ceiling. And what they finally decided must have happened was years before there had been an earthquake And the ceiling had crashed down, creating this sealed room. And through the years, when the grave robbers had come, they saw a floor. And Gabby saw a floor. But it was a 12-year-old who saw something different that led to an incredible discovery. One of the things they discovered were two scrolls, two silver scrolls about the size of a cigarette. When they brought these back, they began looking at them, and what they discovered was they weren't 2,000 years old like they'd expected. They were 2,600 years old. It took them three years to be able to unroll them and to be able to see what they had to say. They finally figured out to use some epoxy glue and some dentist tools to try to unroll them and not destroy them. The first word that Gabby said he saw as he started to unroll them was Yahweh the holy name of God. When they finally had them unrolled, what they read was, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It was a benediction from Numbers. It is the oldest writing we have quoting Scripture. 2,600 years old. It's considered one of the top ten archaeological discoveries in the 20th century. All because a 12-year-old boy had eyes to see something different and make a discovery. That was going to be Peter's challenge. In our scripture lesson today, where we start with is Peter in Joppa. Now understand, Peter had grown up in a culture that said, God loves the Jews. They are God's chosen people. He loves the Jews, but he doesn't love the Gentiles. You may worship and be with the Jews, but you should not be with those who are uncircumcised. They are the unclean. That's what he grew up when. God loves the Jews, but he doesn't love the Gentiles. Now, that's not really unusual. Different times in history, all great faiths have those periods where people think God loves us and nobody else. The Jews said God loves us and not the Gentiles. As Christians, we have said God loves us and no one else. Muslims will say God loves us and no one else. Hindus will say God loves us and no one else. If we're not careful, we begin to see God's love as being so selective. And that's where Peter was beginning but God had something new for him to see. And you can tell that Peter was getting closer to being able to experience it because the story begins with him staying at Simon, Ta Simon the tanner's house. Now, understand, a tanner was someone who was considered unclean. If you worked with dead animals all the time and those skins, you were unclean. So Simon the tanner was a Jew who wanted to follow Christ but was considered unclean, and yet Peter was staying there. That's big. That's big. It came the next day, about noon, Peter went up on the roof, and there he began to pray. And while he was praying, he suddenly began to have a vision of where a sheet was coming down from heaven with lots of animals on it that were unclean. And the voice said, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter said, I've never done that. I've never done that. I would not eat what which is unclean. And the voice said, do not call unclean what God has made clean. The vision went away, and then it came back a second time. Same exact thing. And then it went away, and then it came back a third time. And then it went away. Now when I read that, it kind of is clear to me, God's trying to make a point here. He wants to make sure Peter understands it. Three times it comes. But if you and I had continued to read on in the Scripture, you'd see where it says, And Peter pondered these things and was perplexed about the meaning. He was thinking about it when there was a knock at the door. The knock on the door was from three soldiers. They came from Cornelius, who was a centurion, a Roman soldier who was a God-fearer. A God-fearer is someone who was worshiping Yahweh, God of Israel, but was not a Jew, did not follow the food laws and all the other rituals. They were Gentile, but they worshiped God. And Cornelius had sent three of his servants there to, to Peter and said, Will you come with us to Cornelius' home? And it says Peter 
immediately went. They traveled to Cornelius' home. He came out to meet Peter because he knew that no good Jew would come across the threshold. But Peter said, let's go inside. And they went inside and they broke bread and they ate. Peter was eating the unclean food there with the Gentiles. This is one of those hinges in history. One of those moments that changes everything. To be able to say God's love is not just for His chosen people, God's love is for all people, it would change everything. It was a difficult thing for Peter to do. But why is that surprising? Ever since Jesus had walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and He said, Come, follow me. Peter's whole life had been one of change, learning new ideas, doing something for the first time. This morning, I want to continue the sermon series we started a couple weeks ago, Something for the First Time. We said it's going to be our theme for the entire year. It is born out of the question, when was the last time you did something for the first time? It's come about because of the belief that, you know, you and I have a basic tendency as human beings. We like to figure out what we think and the way we see the world and the way we do things, and then we get very comfortable. You know what you think. You know how you do it. It is easy to get comfortable, and before we know it, our life is into a real routine. And when you live your life year in and year out in a good routine, you soon find yourself in a rut. And a rut is nothing but a grave with both ends knocked out. I know a lot of people who are dead long before they die. We've gotten into such a routine, such a rut. We know what we think and how we do it, and we don't want anything to change. And yet it is being able to follow God into the new year where we feel challenged, and we see things in a new way, and we're open to experience new things, that I believe God leads us into life. So all year long we're going to be asking, when was the last time you did something for the first time? For Peter, that was tough. But it changed everything. I want us to look at that this morning. Several things I want to say. First, you know, there's nothing that will stop us from doing something for the first time as fast as the past. For Peter, when he had the vision and it says he came back down in the house, he was pondering what he this meant. And Peter kept saying, but I've never done this before. That's basically what he said. I've never done that before. Whenever you find yourself saying, but I've never done that before, you know you're being controlled by the past. How many times do you hear people say, We've never done it that way. Those words will strike terror into the hearts of pastors. Whenever they show up at the church and the words they hear from leadership are, we've never done it that way before, you know you're in trouble. 24 years ago when I came here to St. Luke's, you know, downtown Oklahoma City was struggling. We were in a difficult period. And we began to dream all kinds of new ideas, something for the first time. We decided to travel to Russia, one of the first two churches under the General Board of Global Ministries to go to Russia in 92 after the wall had come down. 
We decided to go on television. We decided to start Lifelight, our contemporary worship service. We decided to start Wednesday Night Alive, our continuing education opportunities. We decided to go on the radio with a devotional spot five days a week. We started coming up with all kinds of ideas. And do you know how many times a leader in this church said to me, Bob, we've never done it that way before. Zero. Not one. Not one in 24 years has ever said, Bob, we've never done it that way before. We were a family of faith that wanted to dream and do something for the first time. It's how you begin to to find a new sense of life. You can't be trapped by the past. It was about 13 years ago now. I, I had a great opportunity. I was invited to be a part of what was called the Pastoral Summit. The Lilly Foundation had decided, you know, Protestants and Catholics just don't visit together very often. There's a lot of very successful Catholic churches and a lot of successful Protestant churches, but they don't ever really talk. And I got to thinking about that, and I realized, he's right. I go to all kinds of continuing education. I'm always learning new things, but it's put on by the Methodist church or other Protestant churches. It's not the Catholic church. So the Lilly Foundation set aside $600,000 to have three summits, one in San Antonio, Indianapolis, and Boston. And then they wanted to invite some Protestant pastors to dialogue with a Catholic priest to make presentations to the people who would gather and then let people ask questions and just dialogue. What are we learning from each other? So I was asked to be a presenter and to go to Boston to talk about what were we doing in a, a downtown church seeking to revitalize it. Where is Methodism? And so I I traveled to Boston to be a part of this pastoral summit and make some presentations. And what I discovered was I learned a ton. I learned so much about the Catholic Church. When I got there, one of the things I learned was there are two million Catholics in the Boston Archdiocese. Two million. The state of Oklahoma has 3,700,000 people in the whole state. More than half of the population of Oklahoma would be the Catholics in the Boston area. That's a lot of people. The Catholics told me, they said, Bob, you know that we are the first and the second largest denominations in the country. I said, really? He said, yes. He said, there are 60 million Catholics in America. That makes us number one. There are 30 million Catholics who are inactive, and that makes us number two. They loved to laugh. They loved to make jokes. They were so warm, so open. We just had a good time together. And I was learning so much about it. One of those that I got to present with was a priest, Father Walter Cunin. Father Walter was truly one of those great men. Kind, loving, very smart. He had helped to start an organization called Voice of the Faithful. And Voice of the Faithful was really working hard within the Catholic Church to deal with the sexual abuse crisis that was going on in that day in Boston, trying to find a way to support the church, but the victims as well. But they had lots of things they wanted to talk about with the Vatican and the church. They wanted to talk about how they believed women should be ordained clergy. They wanted to talk about how they believed priests should be able to marry They wanted to talk about the church's stance on birth control. 
They had lots of things they wanted to talk about. They loved the church and they wanted to live within the church. And they wanted to have people look with new eyes and see things in a new way. Well, the last presentation Father Walter and I did, um, I made a presentation, he made his. The room was packed. It was standing room only. And when we got through, there was lots of questions. And then there was this lady near the end who stood up and said, I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid that I'm losing the church that I loved so much. With all the changes. I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I immediately looked over at Father Walter. I thought, this is a question for you, not for me. (laughs) She's Catholic. He looked over at me. And then he looked back at her and he smiled and he said, we must not be trapped by the past. We must trust God. We must trust each other. And together we will try. And God will lead us into an exciting future. That was worth the trip. I thought about it all the way home. I have never forgotten Father Walter's word. We must not be trapped by the past. We must trust God. We must trust each other. And together we will try. And God will lead us into an exciting future. For Peter, that was going to be tough. Been raised one way to believe something all his life. And now God was giving him a vision to see things in a new way. Nothing will stop you quicker of doing something for the first time than the past. If you think about it, second, there's nothing that will stop you from doing something for the first time than someone else's opinion. When it says Peter came down from the roof and he began to think about this and he was perplexed, what did it mean? Let me tell you, one of the things he knew it meant was there were going to be some people back in Jerusalem who were not going to be happy. Peter knew, if I go eat unclean food, if I go be with a Gentile, there's going to be people back in Jerusalem who are not going to be happy. Other disciples, followers, James, brother of Jesus, there'd be a lot of people who would not be happy. So God gives you a vision, and then you start worrying, what is everybody else going to think? That'll stop you from doing something for the first time. You know, be honest. How many times have you been thinking and praying, God, I want to live fully in the life you've given to me. I want to be who you've called me to be. And as you start thinking about it, you start thinking, well, do I want to go back to take a course in school? What will people say? Me going to school at my age? Maybe I want to learn how to play an instrument. Maybe I want to sing in a choir. Maybe I want to go to a monastery and I'm going to be silent for a whole week. Maybe I want to float the Amazon. Maybe I want to take a yoga class. What will people say? Ah, what do the people think? So often stops us from doing something for the first time. Some of you have heard me talk about Gordon McKenzie before. He he was a fascinating person for many, many years at Hallmark. You know, if you work at Hallmark, you have to be creative. And he was creative. He loved being an artist. But he also said, you know, Hallmark had grown to be such a big business that they had all kinds of restrictions and rules on how you do things. And he said that became the hairball. 
And somehow you had to be careful you didn't get sucked into that so you could orbit it and keep on doing creative things. So he wrote a book, Orbiting the Giant Hairball. It was a book that Tim Hine gave me. Tim Hine was our minister of music for so many years. And every time I pick up that book, I, I think of Tim. And I was reading it. I've read it many different times, Orbiting the Giant Hairball. He tells a great story of when he loved to volunteer and go to elementary schools to try to encourage kids to be artists. And he would go in and he'd show them how he works with metals and builds animals and then how he can paint or draw. He would try to inspire them to be artists. And he said it was always the same. He'd come into an auditorium. They'd bring in the first grade class. And he'd say, man, there's lots of people who must be artists in the school. I see so much great art around here. How many of you are artists? He said, every hand, every hand, first grade. I'm an artist, I'm an artist. He said, then they're bringing a second grade class. Tell them the same thing. And I'd say, how many of you are artists? And he said, half the hands would go up. He said, the third grade class comes in. And I said, how many of you are artists? Maybe a third. He said, and so it went with fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. By the time I got to sixth grade, I'd give my pitch and show them what I'm doing. I'd say, well, how many of you are artists? And he said, maybe two hands would go halfway up. It's like nobody wanted to claim, I am an artist. And he said, I always asked the school, I would ask them, here's what happened when I did the first grade, second grade. He said, I'd walk them through it. And I said, so tell me, what's going on around here? Are all the artists transferring out to some of the school? He said, the sixth graders got it. He said, no, what's happening is we somehow in education managed to squelch the creative genius inside of us because we start making everybody be normal, think the same way. We begin to worry. What will others think about us? And we kill the creative genius within us all. Are there things you've dreamed about doing? Things that you believe God calls you to do? Nothing will stop you from doing something for the first time as quick as somebody else's opinion. Peter had a great vision. To eat unclean food? I've never done it that way before. What will everybody think back in Jerusalem? And so finally... For Peter, it all started with prayer. Up on the rooftop, he was praying. And God gave him a vision to help him see things in a different way. To make a discovery. But Peter, when there came a knock at the door, made the decision to go. He made the decision to go do something for the first time. You and I, I hope in 2015, I hope we're going to hold each other accountable and we're going to encourage each other to pray, to think, to be open to God's leading in our lives, but then to have the courage to go, to do something for the first time. Because that's where God is able to work in your life and you discover something new. I came across a great story of a boy named Luis Elnedo. Luis lived in Ecuador, six years old. 
He was a healthy boy, a few brothers and sisters, a mom and dad who loved him. They were very poor. They were natives of Ecuador, Indians there. They lived in a, a hut. It had a dirt floor. They were good Catholics. They went to church every Sunday. But then at six years old, suddenly, Lewis started having some tingling in his fingers, tingling in his toes. And as time went on, then he started getting weaker. He had a hard time moving his hands, moving his feet. And his mother was watching this with her son, and they couldn't figure it out. She took him to the tribal herbalist, took him to the medicine man. Nothing they did could seem to make him better. And this mother kept watching her child just literally fade before her very eyes. And she loved him so much, and there was nothing she could do to help him. So one day she picked him up, and she carried him down to the church. And there she went into the cathedral, and she laid this little boy down, and she began to pray. Oh, God, I love my son. Help me. Help me know what to do. I love my son. Help me know what to do. She prayed to the Virgin Mary, mother to mother. I know you loved your son like I love my son. Help me. Show me what to do. She picked up Lewis and she walked him back out of the church. And as she was walking through the town, she looked over and she saw a building. It wasn't a new building. The building had been there for years. But she had never seen the building. Now she looked at it. And what she read on the building was World Health Organization. That meant absolutely nothing to her. She did not know what that meant. But there was a voice inside her saying, Go in, go. And so she walked into this building, and there was Dr. Dan Brickleman. He got to know her and Lewis, and he took him back, and they went and did an MRI. And sure enough, he discovered he had a tumor growing on his spine. Well, now, Dan had done his residency at a hospital in New York, New York Hospital. He had worked with Dr. Fred Epstein. Some of you have heard me talk about Dr. Fred Epstein. He's a pediatric neurosurgeon. He wrote a book entitled, If I Get to Five. And, and he called Fred and he said, Fred, i got a family here. This mom is so neat. And this little boy is just wonderful. And I think you could help them. And Fred said, we have money here for just such kind of a thing. Put them on a plane. Send them to New York. One week after praying and walking into the World Health Organization, Lewis and his mom were about to do something for the first time. They were about to get on a plane and fly to New York. But as you can imagine, there are a lot of people in that town who thought this is a horrible idea. You're going to the United States? What are those people like there? To the big white magician? You don't know what's going to happen. You're so far away from home. You're going to fly on an airplane. There were so many people who were saying, this is a bad idea. But she believed that this is where God was leading her. And so she did that thing. She got on an airplane with Lewis, and they flew from Ecuador to New York. And can you imagine landing in New York? You're six years old. You've been living in a hut with a dirt floor, and now you're in New York City. I mean, he was terrified. He was terrified. They came to the hospital and met Fred and the staff, and, 
And they started doing all these tests over the next few days. And sure enough, they fell in love with this little kid. They fell in love with his mother. They won their hearts. And Fred said, we were all so excited about them and hoping we could help. They brought in a doctor who could speak Spanish and translate. And they told him what they would do. They said over those several days, wherever Lewis went, he was holding on to his teddy bear. It was the one thing that seemed to give him hope. Finally, the day came. They wheeled him into the operating room. They began to put him to sleep. And they waited until he was asleep. And they took that teddy bear and took it back to the room. They finally pulled him into the operating room. And there they made the incision, began to peel it all back. And what they discovered was this tumor was far bigger than it showed on the MRI. This was going to take a while. This would be tedious. They'd been working about two hours on the surgery when suddenly the anesthesiologist said, uh, we've got an irregular heartbeat here. Within 60 seconds, an alarm went off. The blood pressure was falling. In a few more seconds, a second alarm went off. He was in cardiac arrest. And the surgery had been going slow, slow and delicate. Suddenly they were throwing in all kinds of the, uh, the towels and anything they could to close up the wound, hold it together, flip him over. The crash cart was coming in. Doctors were storming the room, putting things in the IV, epinephrine straight into the heart, paddles, one, two, three. Fifteen doctors, everybody doing something, and nothing worked. Nothing. Dr. Epstein began doing an external heart massage, and he said, all I could do is pray. Oh, God, we need your help here. Oh, God, we need your help. Lewis, don't leave me. Don't leave me. Nobody wanted to call it. Nobody wanted to call it and say, we lost him. Dr. Fred Epstein kept working. He kept working. 29 minutes went by. And suddenly the anesthesiologist said, we got a heartbeat. We got a beat. Within two minutes, the blood pressure was back to normal. There was a normal sinus rhythm. And Fred said, when a miracle falls out of heaven on you, sometimes all you can say is thank you. Thank you. He said, we all took a little time just to kind of calm down and regroup ourselves. That had been a little exciting. Finally, we were ready. We rolled him back over and we started operating again. It took a number of more hours. Finally, they closed him up, took him to recovery. And now they had two great fears. They got him into the recovery room and Finally, little Lewis began to come around and, and Fred asked the doctor, ask him, ask him to wiggle his toes and his fingers. And little Lewis raised his hands and began to wiggle his fingers and then wiggle his toes. And when he did, this whole place erupted. Everyone started screaming and shouting and clapping. And this little six-year-old was looking around like, okay. But if that made everybody happy, he did it even more and more. Wiggle those fingers, wiggle those toes. And everybody kept clapping and kept cheering. No paralysis, no paralysis. Everyone was thrilled. But then the second big concern, 29 minutes, had the massage, had all they'd been doing, been enough to get oxygen to the brain. Fred said, ask him, what is his name? Well, it's Louis Elnado. Ask him where he is. New York City. Ask him who I am. Well, you are Dr. Epstein, the big magician. And then the doctor said, but what he really wants to know is, who took his teddy bear? 
Fred said he was fine. He was fine. Physically, mentally, he was fine. The days would go by. He would grow stronger until the day he and his mother got on an airplane and she took him back home to Ecuador, back to a new life, a gift of a new life. Lewis had been blessed by Fred and by a wonderful surgical team who would not quit, by Dr. Dan Brickleman, but most of all, Lewis had been blessed by a mother's prayer. A mother who was willing to pray and to listen and to see something different, an opportunity. A mother who was willing to do something for the first time. And that's what always leads to life. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.